All right, we're in Mark chapter 6 tonight. If you need a Bible, there's one right in front of you there. You might not notice it because it kind of blends in with all the blue. I call my lesson tonight from verses 30 through 56 of Mark 6, what apostles do. Remember, last week's lesson was called, from called, that's what happens to a disciple, to sent, that's what happens to an apostle. Apostolos, the word from which we get the word apostle, means sent one. Okay? How many of you have been called? Okay, that would be all of you, so get your hands up. Okay? <laughs> right, all right, good. Uh, called, yeah. You were, the minute you put your trust in Christ, he said, oh, I've got something for you. Come here, be with me, walk with me, learn from me, right? You were called. How many of you have been sent? Yes, we got half the hands. This, and the answer is all the same people. God gets involved in your life. He's going to call you. He's going to send you. And you're thinking, well, I don't think I'm ready for that sent thing. That's exactly what the apostles thought. <laughs> okay. They signed up for being called. <laughs> yeah, we're going to follow Jesus all over and watch him do miracles. And then about halfway through the ministry of Jesus, he says to his disciples, now I'm going to send you out to do what I've done. That's sent, isn't it? Okay. And they're going like, ah, uh, ah, uh, don't think so. But God had a bigger plan. What apostles do. Let's stop for a moment to define again the word apostle. Literally, a designation given to someone who is officially sent to represent another. Paul uses a similar word in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he calls Christians. He uses the word ambassadors. Have you ever heard that? Okay. Ambassador. Representative where and for what reason? Yeah. Rep representative in a foreign country of their homeland for the purpose, right, of bringing the truths, the message, the beliefs, the philosophy of that nation to bear on a foreign nation. And that's why Paul chose the word. So we're here. The world is not our home. Okay? But we're here representing heaven. Sent. Sent ones. Apostles are always sent with a higher purpose in mind. Meaning, when you become an apostle, it means what you're doing right now doesn't mean much. But God wants to plug you into something that is earth-shaking. Something that is world-changing. Something that will really make a difference in the world in which you live. He wants to do that through you. You believe that? Can you believe that? Yeah? It's absolutely true. God wants to change the world and He wants to use you to do it. That's what apostle is. So we ask the question, what is Christ's purpose for us, for you? There's a concept taught in the New Testament that is helpful here. Um, I remember first hearing about this idea from Dr. Bill Bright. Has anybody ever heard of him? Founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. And I, uh, one of my many jobs when I was coast was um, 
I worked with a Campus Crusade for Christ in some of their ministry. And so for training, we went to uh, California to hear from Dr. Bill Bright. And he said, <laughs> think about it. Every person in this room wants to do evangelism because that's why we were there. You want to see people come to know Christ. You want to see people follow Christ. That's why you're here. Well, about how that might happen. And then he said, I want you to think about this. First of all, he goes, most of you are thinking you're going to reach the world through spiritual addition. Okay? That means you hope that someday you'll be a great evangelist and fill up a stadium and uh, preach to people in the stadium and large mouth. Remember, you ever watch a Billy Graham crusade? Large mouth people at the end while they sing, just as I am, come forward. And God's going to use you in that way. But chances are... He's not, because that was a unique ministry to which God called Billy Graham. Okay? And the truth is that if you want to reach the world for Christ, okay, and you preach to a stadium full of unbelievers every day of all of your life, okay, and you were such a good preacher that every time you preached, everybody accepted Christ, okay, you were one-tenth of the world's population in your life. But, he says, let me <laughs> offer to you an alternative. Spiritual multiplication is this. Find two people, lead them to Christ, disciple them, so that in a year's time, each of them can then find two others and disciple them. In 40 years, you would reach the entire world for Christ. That's spiritual multiplication. That's what Jesus taught. <laughs> I mean, people will like go like, you know how they'll, they'll come into a place like this and go like, huh, not too many people there. God can't be in this. Where's the crowd? And yet, Jesus spent three and a half years of his life in ministry. He had 12. One of them betrayed him. 11 ran away when he died. Okay? We would say failure, right? Okay? But he was planting the seed of something world-changing because he used those apostles to begin a process dramatically shaking the world. Spiritual multiplication. Paul, we know that the early church practiced this because Paul talks about it. His description of it in his letter to Timothy, his son in the faith. He says, The things you have heard me say, Okay, in other words, he's saying, these are things I shared with you, one-on-one, -on -one, one person to another. The things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, we then invited others to hear the message to. These entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. In other words, spiritual multiplication. Pass it on. Empower people to share the message. That's what we're going to talk about tonight as we look at what apostles do. What apostles do. The first thing we're going to say is apostles humbly recognize their limitations as servants. And that's why most of us don't do apostle work. Because we go like, what can I do? Right? Right? And you're right, you can't do much. 
<laughs> but the truth is that God wants to do something through you, and the first thing you have to recognize before God can do something really big through you is you can't do anything. <laughs> as long as you're thinking, well, I think maybe if I work really hard and get enough people to give money to it, and I work this out, and I get pe- this person to cooperate with me and help in this way, and I find the right church and all that, then I can make something happen. you got to get through all that. Because <laughs> that's not going to do it. You get to the point where you go, man, I have nothing to offer. I'm just bankrupt here. But God's inviting me to become an instrument through which he can do big things. Verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Jesus had sent them out two by two And told them, I'll give you the power to do what I've been doing. Cast out demons, heal the sick, preach the gospel. Call on people to repent and get ready because God's about ready to do something big. They went out and did that. Then when they were done, they reported what they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Now that's interesting because they, he sends these apostles out. They're doing God's work. Okay? They come back. They're all excited. There's lots more work to be done. There's sick people everywhere. There's people oppressed by the devil everywhere. <laughs> There's people everywhere who need to hear the gospel. Right? So get back to work. But no, Jesus says, take a break. Okay? The answer to reaching people for Christ is not working harder. Even if you want to. Even if you think so. Jesus says, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. And so they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place being an apostle begins with recognizing that you have no agenda of your own now we do (laughs) i pray a prayer when i'm laying in bed every morning when i first wake up but then i also have a prayer when i get to my desk whichever desk that is i have like five different Yes, I have a desk in my office at home. I have a desk upstairs here. I have a desk downstairs here. I have two desks at Fairhaven. Okay, so I got desks there. Whenever I get to my desk, reach into my backpack, pull out my day timer, and my day timer, as you well know, because I've talked about before, has every 15 minutes scheduled from 3:45 in the morning till 10 o'clock at night every day, seven days a week. That's my, but. Here's what I do for this reason. The second I get to my desk to start down some of those little things that I've got to check off on, I hold it up to God and I go, these are my plans for the day, God. If you've got different plans, I'm going with yours. I have no desire to get all this done and miss your will. I only want to do your will today. And then at the end of the day, how often do you think I get everything that's on my agenda done? Very seldom. 
very seldom. Occasionally I do. But I assume that at that moment, I was smart enough or in tune enough with the Spirit that I only put things on my agenda that God had planned for me. But generally, there'll be at least one or two diversions from my schedule. Because apostle work is done with people. And people come and go in your life, don't they? Yeah. (laughs) And all you can do is embrace. I mean, like we have like meetings and activities and we schedule and plan them all. But almost every time somebody you're counting on for almost every meeting you will ever do will at the last minute tell you they're not going to be there or won't, just won't show up. Now, I'm not saying bad things about them. I'm just saying that's just life and these are volunteers so that's what happens. Okay? I didn't plan it. I wouldn't have planned that. I'd have everybody always show up and always do their job every time they're signed up to do it. But that's just not the way it happens. God, however, is never caught by surprise when it comes to these things. We serve for Christ's will and pleasure and His alone. So, tomorrow, since today is about done, you got like some... You Jesus, or not? You be still. No, I, li- I like your I like your ringtone. Some sometimes I like to listen when people's phones go off to go like, what's their ringtone? Some are kind of embarrassing, but yours is pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> so apostles have this view: God wants to change the world through me, but I can't do it, and I can't even plan it. All I can do is make myself available to God. Don't ever get to the point, unless you want to limit what God can do through you, where you've got these things like, well, I will never do this. I'll never go there. I'll never talk to them. (laughs) Because, you should put on your list, I'll never hit Dave. That's not nice. (laughs) Right. Uh, Because that'll be the very thing that God will direct you to do. I've seen it time and again. Second, apostles simply make themselves available as instruments. Instruments. I want you to picture um, in the operating room, right? And the, the attending nurse has lined up all of the instruments that will be used in any, any surgery. I remember uh, when I was a, a hospital chaplain. How many of you think I've had too many part-time jobs? Yeah, you're probably right. I was a hospital chaplain once, and for some of the training, we had to observe surgeries, which are pretty cool. And so they'd send you to the room with the dome, and you're looking down on the surgery. Well, the funny thing was, they, this was in the early days of bypass surgery. I mean, I've been around a long time, you know. Okay, and this was like really early on, and uh, and they were getting ready to uh, do um, surgery. I said, yeah. So they were they were getting ready to cut through the sternum and open up the chest to get at the heart. And so they have a, a I'll call it a saw. Do they even call it a saw? <laughs> yeah, saw. Okay, it's a saw, but not not your like typical saber saw that you have in your uh, garage. And, and and every time the the surgeon put the the saw down on the person's chest it would like bog down and stop. 
And he did that about three times. And he probably forgot that he was in the room where a bunch of students were looking down on him because he took that saw and threw it against the wall so hard that it left an imprint of the saw. I don't want to say, and said a few curse words. And said, <laughs> because here's why. Instruments are important, aren't they? And yet... Before that surgeon showed up, those instruments were doing nothing but laying on a cold table just sitting there. <laughs> That's you without the life of God flowing through you. But it's amazing, amazing. A an effective instrument properly designed, working properly, <laughs> in the hand of somebody who's gifted. That's Christ. You're like the instrument in God's hand. But many who saw them leaving recognized them, recognized the disciples, the apostles, and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. They were longing for what they brought, healing, deliverance. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, He had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's a good description of lost people, isn't it? So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so the disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said. And it's already very late. You ever try to like inform God of something? God, you're probably not aware that that person's not nice to talk to. If he sent you to talk to him, he's well aware of that, okay? This is a remote place. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Makes sense to me. But he answered, how did he answer them? You, read it with me, you give them something to eat. You ever like be praying and you're going like, God, you got to do something. Look at it, what's going on with these people. It's such a terrible condition. And then as soon as you're done whining and complaining, God says, you give them something to eat. Hmm. That would take more than a half year's wages, they said. Are we to go? <laughs> and that's kind of funny because what were their wages at this point? Zero. <laughs> they weren't working. They were just following Jesus. But a half year's wages if we had a job. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Jesus, you're talking crazy here. <laughs> God ever ask you to do something crazy? Not yet? Oh, just wait. <laughs> How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. Now, do you think Jesus was unaware of how many loaves there were? He's Jesus. But they needed what was available, right? When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. 
So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. That's a lot of people. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven, he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of bread and fish. 12 baskets full. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. And who fed them? No, the, the disciples fed them. Right? That's what he did. <laughs> Jesus empowered them to do it. They did it. Can you feed 5,000? Yeah, you can. If that's what God calls you to. And if Jesus is the one working in you and he's doing it, don't, don't ever limit him. Okay? You're right. The, the key ingredient is, but see, that's why I remember back to the first point was this understanding, I can do nothing. But in the hand of Jesus, I can do anything he wants me to do. Back to the surgeon illustration. Think about it. You need an emergency surgery. Okay? So, do you want um, the finest operating room in America, prepared with the finest instruments, and have me do the surgery? <laughs> or be in some crude, remote place where there's no instruments, only a dirty pocket knife, and have a gifted surgeon use that dirty pocket knife to do the surgery? The second, wouldn't you? Guess what? That's Jesus using me to make a difference in a person's life. I'm just like the dirty pocket knife. Okay? And every time, you do well to choose that. <laughs> Not choose me. Trust me. There was a reason why they were just having me watch surgery. <laughs> Although I do think it's pretty cool. The work to be done, the work that we face, is greater than any apostle or even any group of apostles could ever accomplish demanding the apostles to see themselves as channels only of the master's power. Only instruments in God's hand. If Jesus is working in you and you are totally sold out to him, willing to do whatever he has for you to do, imagine what he could do with your life in the situations you find yourself at your house, your neighborhood, your place of employment, your church, wherever you're residing. Third, they confidently expect Christ <laughs> to show up as Lord. Sometimes it takes faith to place yourself in a situation where God wants you to be and then say, God, if you don't show up and do something big, I'm going to be really embarrassed here. And the disciples would find that same thing out. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. <laughs> he made them. 
and go ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Now, I don't think that was because Jesus, you know, had a degree in crowd control or something. That was because he had something he wanted to teach them on the lake. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake. And he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Have you, have you done a lot of boat rowing? One time, I had a friend of mine. Okay, This friend of mine is, well, let's just say he's a few pounds overweight. Probably a hundred pounds overweight, I guess. And then another guy who's now older than me by 10 years, and they talked me into going to the boundary waters with them because it would be fun. And I went, okay? And I rode the two of them around through at least 30 lakes all the way across. By the time it was done, all I had to do was look down at my chest muscles, my deltoids, they were just like throbbing. I know what it's like to struggle at, at the oars and feel like, oh, my arms are numb. I can't row another, another stroke. The one guy, the old guy, was in the back going, this way, that way. The other guy was in the front going like, oh, this is lovely, while his oars barely touched the water. <laughs> oh, by the way, they couldn't carry the backpacks either. So have you ever seen the backpacks they use for like, uh, what's, what do they even call that when you go... You, you go one lake, you come to shore, then you have to carry the stuff to the next lake to go portaging. Yes, thank you, portaging. And they have these backpacks that are like as big as this front row of chairs. They're like huge. I had one on my front, completely packed with camping gear, one on my back <laughs> because one of them had a bad back and the other one already had a pack on the front. Yeah. I can't even believe I brought that up because I wish I could forget that. <laughs> Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. That's an interesting scene. And how many of you have seen the, uh, or, or just read the book, or seen the movie, um, The Shack, where, where the, guy, the guy goes on a, a walk across the lake with, with Jesus. It's pretty interesting. He was about to pass them by. <laughs> that would be curious. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. <laughs> That's an interesting thing because the words that are translated here are the, the same word for ghost and spirit. But in the old version, remember the, the like King James, it was like holy ghost. And then here it says, thought they saw a spirit. But in the NIV, they flipped those around around because we think ghost some scary disembodied spirit they cried out because they all saw him and they were terrified well you can relate right immediately he spoke to them and said take courage it is I don't be afraid how many of you think that you would be reassured by that because I wouldn't I'm going like I still never saw anybody walk on water even Jesus then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. 
For they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. <laughs> hearts hardened means they had narrow views. <laughs> when you start doing apostle work, know this. <laughs> You're going to get your eyes open. Because <laughs> God's going to show you what He can do. What He wants to do. What He cares about. Not what you care about, what you think you can do on your own or what you've done in the past, but what He wants to do. Don't ever harden your heart to that. The challenges they face are God-sized ones. Have any God-sized challenges in your life? No? Okay, good. Thank you, recovery people, for going. (laughs) Yeah, that's a God-sized challenge, isn't it? You can't do it. Seem to recall that that's what the 12 steps say, right? <laughs> Doesn't it? Okay. Powerless. And then I came to believe that a power greater than myself <laughs> could restore me. Yeah, that's it. The challenges we face are God sized ones. The faith regard, required to take them on is based on our perception of who Jesus is. And what Jesus can do. Not based on who you think you are and what you think you can do. I like that from uh, some of the material that they're using for Andrew's class with Rick Warren on church building. He says when he first started building a church in Southern California, a lot of the churches around it responded to him by saying, who does that Rick Warren think he is? And he said, whenever he got the chance, he would answer them saying, you know, that's not what it is. It's not who I think I am. It's who I think Jesus is. Jesus is bigger than you can possibly imagine. And he can do anything. Fourth, they wisely recognize that the work goes on and on and on and on. As long as you're alive here on earth... Before Jesus returns, (laughs) ministry is always relevant. The more screwed up the world is, the more important our presence is here. So when you start, like, you know, shaking your head about how messed up the world is and how many problems we have, and that's that's all just good news for the apostle because that means you've got a reason for being here. Somebody needs help, somebody needs good news. Somebody needs a touch from God. That's why you're here. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region, carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into the villages, towns, countryside. They placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let him touch even the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. There's no retirement plan for the apostle. Sorry, that's the bad news. When most people hear my retirement plans, they'll usually go, that doesn't sound like retirement. No, that doesn't sound like American 21st century retirement. Okay. 
All retirement does is it frees you up from the need to collect a paycheck so you can do big things for God. Okay, I mean, if you're going to work 40, 50, 60 hours a week <laughs> just to be able to put food on the table, sometimes it's hard to even find time. God will use whatever you've got and He'll use you where you're at. But the truth is, if you ever make it to retirement, retirement can be awesome <laughs> because now you won't have those same extreme needs and now God can use you in new ways. As human need is always and everywhere present, so the message of Christ's sufficiency is forever relevant. So that means we always have a purpose. I mean, a lot of people think the church is an old-fashioned thing, but if we keep on point and preach the message God's given us to preach of His grace, that is ever more relevant with the passing of time. People need God's grace today more than they've ever needed it before. Do you know that? The answer isn't to go back to a previous time. The answer is to bring the ever-sufficiency of God's grace to bear on the lives of hurting people. All right, let's take some time to discuss questions, comments about the text tonight. <laughs> well, that was a human surgeon, not God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right, right. Yes, there is. I didn't mention it because it's going to come up in a later lesson. Because Jesus is, when He does this, he is in the Gent or in the uh, Jewish side of Galilee, okay, ministering among Jews. He he, he does this miracle of feeding the five thousand, and as a result, at the end they have twelve baskets of leftovers. Later in Mark, they'll he'll do the same miracle with four thousand men and whatever women and children are present on the other side of the lake in Gentile region. And how many baskets do you think they have left? Seven. Because seven's the number of completion. Everybody's included. The twelve is saying, I'm the one that the Jews were looking for. The one you've been looking to show up and feed you. I've arrived. That's what the twelve baskets say. On the other side of the lake, he's saying, hey, and this good news, it's not just for Jews. It's for everybody. Yeah, thanks for pointing that. I, I actually looked at it and I, I'm going like, should I mention it now or wait till I bring it up again? And I, I decided to leave it. So thanks for reminding me it was important to mention. Yes, Jasmina. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I just want to let me, let me um, develop that further, though. It's not like God made you an addict for that purpose, but 
Sin made you an addict, okay? Just like sin made me the way I am, all right? And God said, I can redeem that. He can redeem anything, okay? And so he can take, think about, like, the, for instance, the ministry that Dave has, okay? Do you think he'd have that same ministry if he hadn't been an addict? Ask Dave. No, okay? So God redeemed his addiction, didn't he? <laughs> and used it. And anything you have, anything you've done, any mistake you've made, any sin you've been involved in, any addiction you've developed, God will take that if you give it to him and redeem it and use it for God's glory. One of the best examples of that is the church is supposed to be in the redemption business, not in the shunning sin business. But a lot of people get that confused. In Puerto Vallarta, where, where I work with a church down there, the church called Worship in Paradise, they have their worship services on Sunday, okay, in a building that's called the Act 2 stage, and it's the, um, it's the theater where they have female impersonators for the gay community perform their acts all week long. When you come into the worship center, all across the top are the pictures of all the, the, uh, the, the drag queens. Yeah, okay? But on Sunday, we fill that place with worship. We're redeeming it. The answer isn't to say, mm, 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 that place there, and to go by. The answer is to say, you know, we can bring Christ there. We can bring Jesus to that place. And Jesus said, man, I can use Jasmina's addiction. From my glory. If, but what do you have to do. For him to do that. You got to give it to him. Right back same thing isn't it. You give it to him he'll use it. Good question. Yes. I don't think they had doubt in Jesus being able to do that. I think they, he, they had doubt in Jesus being able to use them to do that. <laughs> okay? I think if Jesus would have said, stand back, watch what I can do, they would have said, let's see what Jesus is going to do. I mean, they had seen him do some pretty incredible things already. All right? I mean, he had just walked on water. Okay? But I think their thing is, the problem was he was saying, no, you do it. Remember? <laughs> they, they said, how are we going to feed all these people? He, he could have said, stand back, I'll take care of this, guys, right? That's not what he said, did he? He said, you feed them. How are they going to? Only if he does it through them is that going to happen. That's where the doubt came in. The doubt wasn't in Jesus. The doubt was in, could Jesus really use me to do that? We have that same doubt, don't we? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm just curious. You know, I, I, I find myself doing this. And, like, I'm going through the day, like you shared earlier, and all of a sudden I'll, I'll be struggling and I'm getting frustrated. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm, used, I'm trying to use my own will to do mm -hmm. this. 
Sure. You did it all your life, so of course it's a natural thing. We just instinctively snap back to it, don't we? Yeah. yeah. So what do you do at that moment then? Surrender. Turned it over, yeah. That's exactly it. And that's exactly what we got to do. That's just what they did. Jesus said, no, no, no. And Jesus will work with us on this. He worked with them. He said, you feed them. Okay, well, find out, start, start by finding out how much you got. Okay, how much you got? Oh, that's not much, is it? Okay, bring it to me, right? <laughs> that's all the stuff. That's exactly what you do when you're at work and you start getting frustrated. Yeah, you need to learn to look at you, meaning us, plural, you, uh, need to learn to look for symptoms of I'm trying to do it myself. Okay, and the symptoms of trying to do it, well, frustration is one of them always because frustration is a psychological term that means to be constantly stopped short of a goal, frustrated. Okay, it's a particular kind of anger that, that comes and it comes from I'm trying to get here and I can't get there. Okay, well, frankly, you can't get too many places so that's going to come up a lot. But if every time you're frustrated, you go like, wait a minute, wait a minute. If this is a goal that God has for me, I can't not get there. If this isn't a goal God has for me, why do I want to get there? Give it to Him. Frustration subsides. <laughs> oh, that's your own. You're the chair of the yuppies. So, did you become a yuppie or did they become uh, yahoos? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the way it works. Awesome. And again, because, see, again, what we're saying is there are these sociological structures and barriers that limit where I can go and what I can do. But the thing is, we're bearers of the gospel. And everybody needs it, whether they're yuppies or homeless people. Both groups need it. So when we go, we're going to the universal need of human beings. It does go down to self-esteem. Yeah. I, I didn't feel I belonged there. Right. He was wise enough to say, I don't care. Yeah, very wise. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, uh, of course. Well, and, and all you're saying by that is, yeah, I know that's a, that's a, uh, uh, a, a term and that's a, that's a good one because it is a sickness. But another way to say it is when you're saying that, you're just saying they're as human as you are. Okay. Anybody else? Questions, comments? These are good. Next week, we're going to be in chapter 7. The lesson is called, That Which Defiles. <laughs> In other words, what makes us dirty? <laughs> Who makes us clean? Jesus will talk about it in a little conflict he has with the Pharisees. God bless you. Thanks for coming tonight. Glad you were here. Have a great night in the Lord. Drive home safely.